millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From MCIE. If you are an educator today, you should be able to predict, you know, if your classroom is inclusive, that you're going to have some students who are struggling with trauma. You'll have some students who are not reading at grade level. You'll have students who are language learners who have, you know, mild to moderate to severe challenges. And if we know that, why are we still designing one size fits all lessons and then burying ourselves in accommodations, which is really actually in many ways affecting the integrity and the opportunities that students have? Hello and welcome to season eight, episode four of the Think Inclusive podcast presented by MCIE. I am your host, Tim Viegas. This podcast features conversations and commentary with thought leaders in inclusive education and community advocacy. Think Inclusive exists to build bridges between parents, educators, and disability rights advocates to promote inclusion for all students. That's right, y'all. All means all. To find out more about who we are and what we do, go to thinkinclusive.us, the official blog of MCIE, and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with Katie Novak, Universal Design for Learning expert about some common misconceptions of UDL, how UDL works with students with more significant disabilities, and what it was like for her to lead her school district to implement inclusive education. So stick around after the break, our conversation with Katie Novak. I'd like to welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast, uh, Katie Novak. She is a internationally renowned education consultant, 
a practicing leader in education and a graduate instructor at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. She is the author of a, a number of books, including UDL Now, Innovate Inside the Box, and Equity by Design. Uh, Katie designs and presents workshops both nationally and internationally, focusing on the implementation of the of Universal Design for Learning, which is UDL, MTSS, Inclusive Practices, and a number of things. Welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so, uh, Katie, it's a pleasure talking with you and... Um, you know, everyone um, that I work with at uh, the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education is so jealous <laughs> that I have a chance to talk with you and a number of other people in districts that we work with. So uh, thank you for your time. Um, so you are, you are um, you know, known as being a UDL expert, right? You know, um, that there, there's like 30 years of research around UDL, right? But still people don't really know what it is. Like when you say UDL, you know, you kind of have an idea that it's this buzzword. Um, so what are some, you know, what is it? What are some common misconceptions about what UDL is? Yeah, sure. So what I like to start off with is what is universal design before we get into what is universal design for learning. So universal design is a concept in architecture. And, you know, back in the 1960s when we were really focused on making all buildings accessible to everybody, there was an architect named Ron Mace who was hired essentially to create more accessibility in these buildings. And the buildings just weren't built for that. So, you know, he's having to like take down like these staircases to put up ramps. You know, you have to go inside and you have to like take out, you know, spiral staircases and this really historic parts of the building to put in, you know, elevators or lifts. And he said, this is so so silly because like everyone when they're building a building even hundreds of years ago can predict that there's going to be some variability about you know the people who need to get in and so from this point forward we should universally design all buildings so that anyone can access them like we shouldn't have to be making accommodations to all of these buildings all the time and that's essentially the same idea in universal design for learning why are we designing lessons where not all students in inclusive and equitable classrooms can learn. And when they don't, we essentially, you know, what I like to say is almost like we bastardize the lesson by creating all these accommodations that really affect the integrity of the lesson or the rigor of the lesson, when in fact we can predict this amazing variability of students. If you are an educator today, you should be able to predict, you know, if your classroom is inclusive, that you're going to have some students who are struggling with trauma. You'll have some students who are not reading at grade level. You'll have students who are language learners who have, you know, mild to moderate to severe challenges. And if we know that, why are we still designing one size fits all lessons and then burying ourselves in accommodations, which is really actually in many ways affecting the integrity and the opportunities that students have. And so if we want to ensure equal opportunities to learn, we have to design equitable pathways for students to, you know, decide what are the best approaches for them to learn, what materials do they need to be supported and challenged, and how can they share with us what we know. So the idea of universal design for learning is how do we design a lesson that's flexible enough to support and challenge all students equally by essentially allowing all of them to make decisions about how they learn best. And, 
you know, people hear that and they're like, oh, so it's like differentiated instruction. And then a part of my soul dies a little. And it's not that differentiated instruction is not brilliant. It's just they're not the same. So universal design for learning is much more about embracing the beautiful variability and diversity of every student who we serve. And we want to make sure that they have equal opportunities to learn because the opportunity gap is real and it is, you know, pervasive. And in many ways, it results in what people will call achievement gaps. But if you're not given the same opportunities to access instruction, we can't anticipate, you know, similar outcomes. So the, the real power here is how do we create a multi-tiered system of which universal design for learning is the core where all students have opportunities to make choices, access grade level rigor, and become expert learners. But then also, how do I create that culture where I can pull individuals or small groups to provide them with mastery-oriented feedback, to help them reflect, and to get to know them a little bit better? Because this work is about relationships. You know, I think that uh, for a lot of educators, you know, even if they're not familiar with this concept, they kind of get it. Um, uh, theoretically, they also get it for people with, you know, maybe mild disabilities, um, it, not necessarily for students with more significant disabilities like intellectual disabilities or emotional behavior disorders or autism or, you know, you know, pick pick which one you'd like. Do you see this also working with those uh, this this framework um, with also students with more significant significant disabilities? Yes, absolutely. Because just that's a part of the variability that we can predict. We know that we'll have learners who have moderate to severe disabilities or challenges. But I think that what's really important is in many ways as educators, we have been taught that those labels meant something for learning and they don't. So even if you take a bunch of students who have autism, they don't all need the same thing. <laughs> you know, you can take a, a group of learners who have, you know, a developmental disability. They don't need the same thing. So within any group, there's variability. And I think that what we really need to reject is this one size fits all thinking across the board. So my thinking is if regardless of who I have, if I embrace this concept of variability, that we all have different strengths and weaknesses and they're ever changing based on context. If I know that, then I also know that I can never have things that are one size fits all. So since I'm going to be providing a lot of flexibility and a lot of different pathways anyway, then why wouldn't I work in partnership with service providers and special educators to ensure that the pathways that are absolutely necessary for students with more challenges and support needs um, are provided as access and entry points for all students? Because the real challenge sometimes is, well, I can't you know, provide this other option because we're all reading the same text. But in a universally designed class, the question is not about the text, it's about the goal. What's the firm goal? And if the firm goal is that everyone needs to understand characterization, I might have like a short mentor text that students could listen to or they could read in a small group or they could read it in a more traditional sense or they can translate it. But then I would want them to pair that with a text that they were passionate about. And that would mean that, you know, we take time and we take students to explore what we have in ebooks and explore what we have in the library and choose something what's best for you. And so, you know, what is necessary for some students are provided to all students, but there's no ceiling and floor in a universally designed classroom. And when not all students are doing the same thing at the same time, 
there is no reason not to welcome students who have significant needs for acceleration as well as students who have significant needs for support. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the one of the biggest barriers that we that we're looking at as far as in the United States is standardized assessments and standardized testing um, and accountability measures that that you know really tie the hands of educators. Um, is that something that you see, especially when you were assistant superintendent, um, you know, uh, educators saying, well, you know, I really would like to do this. It does sound great, but, you know, I'm accountable, you know, because, uh, it is reflected in my evaluation or, you know, uh, my, uh, my school scores, uh, the scores that are sent to the state. And I just, I'm not sure if I can teach this way. Is that, is that a barrier that, that you've come across? I've come across it, but I think that it's a barrier that is ripe for being challenged. What we're doing right now is incredibly ineffective. We have less than 40% of students in this country who are meeting grade level standards when you're looking at these like national assessments of educa you know, of, of education progress. So the traditional way is incredibly ineffective at increasing traditional outcomes. That is a fact. And so that's the first part. The second part is, is that these assessments should be universally designed. The Every Student Succeeds Act is very clear that state standardized assessments should be universally designed. They are not there yet, but I am hopeful that we will be making more changes in the future so that what we're measuring aligns much more to the same resources and supports that we would have in college and careers. And the last piece is, is you know, as an educator, the tests in many ways are inaccessible. I will not ever argue with that. I think that the tests are incredibly inaccessible for some learners. I think that they're also very focused a lot of the time on, you know, literature that aligns to dominant culture. So not only are they inaccessible, they're culturally not responsive in many ways. But that being said, I have a choice as an educator, as a school, as an administrator. I can choose to continue to teach in a really inaccessible way to prepare students for an inaccessible test or... I can choose to make sure that I'm teaching in a really incredibly, you know, accessible and trauma-informed and engaging and linguistically appropriate and culturally sustaining way. And I can make sure that the students have all of the knowledge and the skills that they need to have. And then I'm going to have them take an inaccessible test. Um, certainly, I would advocate for much more flexible means of measuring that information. I think that we are way too far into this universe and technology to not provide opportunities to listen to text, to not provide the opportunities to voice to text, because everyone will always have that available. So it, it feels a little bit to me like a game of like, gotcha, and not necessarily what students need to be college and career ready. So long story short, I do not think that we are killing it so well on these tests that it gives us any reason to say, I can't do something different. You know, Beverly Daniel Tatum says, the work is not about intent, the work is about impact. Our impact right now is heartbreaking considering how hard people are working. We have to do something differently. There's a there's something I heard you um, say. I forget it was in one of your videos that you said uh, when we value impact over intentions, all of us have equal opportunity to succeed. Could you expound on that a little bit? I, I thought that was great. Yeah, I just think that in many ways, um, 
in education, we're focused more on our input as opposed to our output. So learning is alterable. All students can be successful given the right environment, given the right instruction, you know, given conditions of nurture. And we have to recognize that certainly there are things that we cannot alter, but there's a heck of a lot more that we can. And when we see that outcomes are not great, it's really easy to say like the kid's not doing their part and saying like, well, I did this. I covered it. I offered extra help sessions. I did this. And if the student is still not learning, then we have to work together to design something differently. And John Dewey wrote an essay called On Teaching in 1910. And he said to say that you have taught something when no one has learned it is like saying you sold something that no one bought. Like it's transactional, you know, you didn't teach it if if students didn't learn it. But in many ways that hurts like my heart and my soul because people go into this work because it's emotional work, because they love teaching and they love kids. And it's heartbreaking to be doing the best you can with what you have and recognizing that you don't have the impact that you want to have, but that requires collaboration that requires, you know, unlearning, it requires learning. And most importantly, it requires being evidence informed enough where we're saying, when I do this, does it make a difference? When I do this, does this make a difference? So it's much more iterative than like traditional education was. Like we can't design the lesson and then be like, yeah, I'm just going to follow it and see how it goes. Like, what are you going to do if kids aren't learning? <laughs> right, right. And it's not enough to just say, well, you did the best you can. Yeah. Moving on to chapter seven. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, believe me, and I know that you've heard the, those conversations as well. Like that's what happens is, oh, we'll get them next time or we'll get them next year. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And, and again, I think that I really honestly believe the intention is good. I think that people are breaking their backs trying to do this, but it's we're not using strategies that are truly responsive to students because in many ways we're doing things in one way and the problem is is any strategy that you use will likely work for some students and they provide like a false narrative that what you're doing is really effective because if you don't truly embrace variability and i say okay i'm gonna provide you with this direct instruction and then i'm gonna give you a quiz and some kids do well it's like see they're paying attention and it's like but they're not the same. You know, we have very different, you know, cognitive skills and, and um, strengths and weaknesses and funds of knowledge and background knowledge. But it also starts getting into things like, you know, your mood can very significantly impact your ability to learn. And so, you know, even with, you know, the right background knowledge and the right ability to, you know, process auditory information, you know, if, if I'm in high school and I just went through a really bad breakup, my mind is not on your lecture. And so that is why we have to think about the barriers as not only being academic, but again, really thinking about how do we create opportunities for students to self-regulate, to find balance, to be able to understand and work through their emotions because, you know, students will experience trauma. Many students will really struggle with, you know, being really angry or really sad and for really good reason. Hmm. That's powerful. That's powerful. I, I like this. Um, I want to get back to the definition a definition or maybe your definition of inclusive education. I know that you talk about it a lot mm-hmm. and you use it as part of your language. Um, so do you have a working definition or do you have a, an idea of like if someone asked you, 
Katie, what do you mean by, you know, inclusive ed? What does that mean? So what I mean by inclusive ed is inclusive placement. I want every student in the classroom together. If you are in second grade, you get a seat in a general education classroom. You know, if you are in 10th grade, you get a seat in a 10th grade classroom. So first of all, you cannot have inclusive practice without inclusive, you know, proportionally scheduled placements. So, you know, all classrooms with really rich variability. That being said, I would say that a, a classroom that is inclusive provides equal opportunities for students to access information, use materials and share what they know. And to do that, I think that right now, it has to be, it has to be accessible, it has to be engaging, it has to be linguistically and culturally appropriate or sustaining, it has to be trauma-informed and it has to be anti-racist. And as our society continues to evolve, we might need to be aware of barriers that weren't on our radar as much before. But right now, we need to make sure that, you know, that, that ableism and that racism and that, you know, all of this, this heaviness that's in our society does not prevent students from learning in our classrooms. Right, right, exactly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, your time uh, in school administration. And I don't actually, I don't really currently know what, what, how you're connected right now, if you're only consulting or if you're working, you know, for, with the district or not. Uh, but uh, I think I heard you say in one of the talks I listened to um, about percentages of LRE and uh, somewhere around 90% or, or more for, and, and something now, you know, now that I'm in this position and, and can see some of the data from the districts that, you know, MCIE has worked with over the years, that 90% seems pretty consistent for districts who are implementing, you know, inclusive practices, you know, with fidelity and have been doing it for years. Um, you know, what was your, what's your experience with getting to that? I know it's not just a number, but, um, you know, what was your experience in leading a school district toward inclusion? Um, you know, what, what was that like? And I guess what, what, what was that like for you as far as being, um, you know, a leader in the school district? So for the past six years, I was the assistant superintendent of schools. I am no longer working full-time in that district. I am still working as a facilitator of professional learning part-time, but I'm not like in a, in a district level administration role. But when I was in that role, I think that one of the, the things that we wanted to make sure was that we were supplementing and not supplanting. And that, like, if I could have a t-shirt, that's what the t-shirt is going to say. Supplement, not supplant. Because, you know, I think that what happens is, is every student is a general education student. And some of those general education students need special education services. I hate the term special education students. Like, we have students with disabilities, yes. But you like they're not special education students. They are general education students who have disabilities. That's a beautiful part of their identity. And they also receive special education. But like that for me, when I hear special ed students or oh, don't even get I can't even say the other thing, the, you know, SPED students. Right. Because I'm a mom of a daughter with a complex, you know, very complex needs. And my daughter is a general education student first. She is, you know, very proud to have ADHD and you know she has a language based learning disability. Um, as well as a mood disorder, but that's just like a beautiful part of who she is. But like, 
I see her as like this fierce light and I don't want paperwork to say like, oh, that's just a special ed student, right? So, um, you know, I think that the students who need special education services need to get them in addition to what is rightfully theirs in being a general education student. Um, you know, the, the, all the, the work that we have seen on the least restrictive environment is essentially every student needs to be placed in the least restrictive environment available to them. And when you're looking at a continuum of services, the least restrictive environment is always a general education classroom. Okay, that's the least restrictive environment. And only when we cannot make that classroom more inclusive can we add that additional continuum of support where you start looking at, you know, paraeducator supported, maybe co-taught, maybe small group, maybe, you know, completely sub-separate. And then you start moving into, you know, out of district placement and residential and things. Okay, so uh, you can find me at uh, novaceducation.com. It's N-O-V-A-K education.com. That's my website. There's lots of blogs and things there. And um, there's also information about all of the books. And as you shared, my two most recent books were both awesome partnerships with brilliant people. Um, Equity by Design was co-written with a dear friend of mine, Mirko Chardon. He is absolutely brilliant. I loved writing it with him. And we essentially kind of juxtapose um, both of our education me as a white woman um, who was raised middle class and him as a black man and just kind of talk about how the system was really designed in many ways for my family for me um, and just how much that was exclusionary to Mirko talks about himself specifically but like how we grew up a half hour from each other and just how we led such different lives in many ways because of the color of our skin. And so that's a great one. Mirko did uh, so great. He did the bulk of work on that, but it was brilliant. And then I wrote Unlearning with Alison Posey, which was very much about in professional learning, we're usually trying to add more on and learn more. And in many ways we have to forget and get rid of a lot of the practices that are taking up some of that mental space. Fantastic. Well, Katie Novak, it was a pleasure to have you on the Think Inclusive podcast. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you. I had a blast. That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. If you would like to hear the entire unedited 38-minute conversation with Katie Novak, go to patreon.com slash podcast to become a patron today. Help us with our goal to reach 50 patrons, and we will produce one additional podcast per month only for our patrons. Your contribution helps us with cost of audio production, transcription, and promotion of the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Anchor app. And while you are there, give us a review so more people can find us. Have a question or comment? Email us at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We love to know that you're listening. Thank you to patrons Pamela P., Tori D., Veronica E., Kathleen T., and Mark C. for their continued support of the podcast. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at MCIE.org. We will be back in March with our guest, Alfie Cohn, author of the book Punished by Rewards, as well as many others. 
we will discuss whether there's a difference between bribing and positive reinforcement, and what are some alternatives to rewards in education. Thanks for your time and attention. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.